Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The White House refuses to call the baby formula shortage a crisis. I know quite a few parents who disagree. The lead starts right now. Baby formula under lock and key in some spots, impossible to find in others. How the Biden administration is now responding after shortages that have been here for months. Plus, Russia retaliating. The Kremlin threatening to cut its power supply to Finland after Finland, a neighboring nation, looks to join NATO. What might come next? And a a chaotic scene at a funeral as Israeli police beat mourners with batons attacking a procession for a slain Palestinian-American journalist. Hello and welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. If you are a parent of an infant and you rely on formula for your baby's nutrition and survival, well, empty store shelves have become a frustratingly familiar sight. This is in Minnesota today, but it is happening all over the country. Slim pickings at a Walmart outside Dallas also today few choices at a pharmacy in Atlanta just a few hours ago, and this afternoon in Alexandria, Virginia, literally across the river from where lawmakers are currently wringing their hands and making speeches about the shortage. Nothing. What's left in stock? That's actually formulated for toddlers, not for infants. Parents from coast to coast panic texting their relatives, asking them to check stores in their neighborhoods. What's that? No luck. They go to the local parent Facebook group pleading for help along with every other parent in the Facebook group. It may only be grabbing national headlines now, but parents of infants have had trouble finding food for their babies for months, and many are at their wits' end. A February recall and subsequent shutdown of a factory making some of the most in-demand formulas exacerbated what was already a stressed supply chain, and now 43% of formula, 43% out of stock across the country on average. The Biden administration and Washington lawmakers are struggling to answer the questions and fears of families across the country. The president himself saying moments ago, if only we had seen this coming. If we'd been better mind readers, I guess we could have. But we moved as quickly as the problem became apparent to us. And we have to move with caution as well as speed, because we got to make sure what we're getting is, in fact, first-rate product. That's why the FDA has to go through the process. That is cold comfort to all those parents still unable to find what their babies need. As CNN's MJ Lee reports for us now, critics say the White House was caught flat-footed by the shortage and they're now racing for solutions. A nationwide shortage of baby formula, sending the Biden White House scrambling. We're going to do everything we can. The president is extremely focused on this. We're looking at every possible angle. Stories of depleted or empty store shelves and panicked parents across the country ratcheting up the pressure on the federal government. So we are working on every lever here to expedite uh, addressing this uh, and to ensure that when people go, when mothers go to the grocery stores in the coming weeks, that that they will see uh, the the, uh, shelf stocked. 
The president convening a call with manufacturers and retailers this week to discuss ways to boost production. The administration also announcing other initiatives, like cracking down on price gouging and importing more baby formula from abroad. CNN also learning that the White House is strongly considering invoking the Defense Production Act to try to ease the pressure, though it is seen as a longer term, not an immediate solution. The production of, manu- of a baby formula is so specialized and so specific that you can't just use the Defense Production Act to t- say to a company that produces something else, produce baby formula. It just doesn't work that way. And one major problem is getting in the way of faster progress, according to the White House, hoarding. What we are seeing, which is an enormous problem, is hoarding. Uh, People hoarding because they're fearful. uh, That is one element of it. And people hoarding because they are trying to profit off of fearful parents. Even as it confronts questions and criticism about whether it waited too long to act and hasn't been aggressive enough, the White House declining to call the nationwide formula shortage a crisis. Well, I don't think it's about a label. I think it's about addressing directly the, uh, the need that families all across the country have. And also reticent to publicly predict when the shortage will end. We're working to move as quickly as possible. That is the candid, honest answer. Now, when CNN asked the White House yesterday whether there is federal guidance for parents who can't find baby formula in stores, we didn't get a good answer from the White House. But just moments ago, the White House announcing there is now a new website. It is hhs.gov formula that has some basic information on what parents can do. But, Jake, I think it is so important to emphasize the reason that there is such intense panic and desperation with parents is because there is no good substitute for formula or breast milk. Now, This is why we are seeing some parents across the country asking questions like, is it safe to make formula at home? Is it safe to dilute formula? And the answer is no to both of those questions. Jake. MJ Lee reporting live for us from the White House. Thank you so much. CNN senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen joins us live. Elizabeth, stores across the country have had a hard time keeping formula in stock for months. How bad is this crisis? How fast can it be fixed? Jake, it is bad. We are talking to parents who are in tears searching for formula for their babies. Let's take a look at these numbers. As you mentioned, 43 percent out of stock rate across the country, according to Data Assembly. And if you look at these eight cities in these metro areas, if we look at the week ending May 8th, it was 50 percent, more than half of the formula that should have been there was actually there. Now, this is not going to be solved quickly. It's going to be uh, Abbott's uh, uh, plant in Michigan that got closed down. It's going to be at least six to eight weeks until they can reopen and start making product again. But let's talk about what Abbott and the White House say that they're doing to help alleviate this. Abbott has airshipped millions of cans of formula from its plant in Ireland, and it's also switching manufacturing lines from other products to formula to prioritize formula. And the White House says that they're working to increase U.S. manufacturing and importing. But again, parents should know that that we're talking at least weeks here and maybe even longer until this gets solved. Jake? How can parents cope safely with the shortage if they're running low on formula? What are they supposed to do? This is really tough. And I'm going to give you more do nots than do's. But let me give you a couple of do nots because these are really important. And MJ mentioned this as well. Do not make your own formula at home. There is no such thing as DIY formula. You have to get 
the right blend of vitamins and minerals and proteins and sugars, or you could really hurt your baby. Also, don't give your baby under one cow's milk or soy milk or anything like that. Do not dilute formula. Your baby needs those calories and those minerals and vitamins. And do talk to your pediatrician. Now, I'm going to be honest here. Your pediatrician doesn't have a secret stash. They don't know of some Target or Walmart that you don't know about. But there is, it is possible that if your baby has a specific medical problem and needs a specific formula, your pediatrician may very well be able to help. Also, if you're a mom who recently stopped breastfeeding in order to go on to formula, to transition to formula, your pediatrician can um, introduce you to a lactation counselor who may be able to help you get that breast milk, breast milk supply going again. Jake? All right, Elizabeth Cohen, thank you so much. Joining us now live to discuss is Democratic Congresswoman uh, Pramila uh, Jayapal of Washington State. She's Washington State. She serves uh, as the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Uh, Congresswoman, uh, thanks for joining us. I know you know this crisis has been building for months. President Biden, Biden moments ago said, quote, if we'd been better mind readers, they could have avoided it. Why does it feel like the Biden administration is only now starting to treat this like the huge deal so many parents know it has been for months? Well, Jake, uh, it's good to see you. I think there are many threads to this problem, and we have to kind of untwine all of them. The thing that really struck me when I started looking into this issue and hearing all the complaints from across the country and certainly from my constituents is that there are only four manufacturers of baby food formula. That is a stunningly small number, and it just shows how market consolidation has made it so that then those four manufacturers are providing I think it's 98% of all the baby food. And in fact, the manufacturing is only happening in one plant right now. So when you have a problem with a plant, a plant shuts down and you're down to one plant and just a couple of manufacturers, this is when you start to see the problems of consolidation on top of the pandemic. Now, secondly, the WIC program actually has um, rules in place so that it's only one or two of those formulas that is actually allowed within the WIC program. And the WIC program uh, buys about 50% of the baby food formula in the country. And so what we are going to do next week, and the speaker just announced this, is we're going to bring an emergency suspension bill to the floor to get WIC to be able to relax some of those restrictions and be able to get more of the different manufacturers' formula in. The third thing is, even though you see those numbers, and it is a crisis. I mean, I fed my child. My daughter was really prematurely born, and so I only could rely on baby food formula, and it was really hard. We were in India at the time. Getting that formula is like life and death for, for a parent, I mean, for a child and for a parent. And so I really sympathize with this. Part of the challenge is it's not that baby food formula is out of stock everywhere in the country. It's out of stock in particular states because the shipments aren't right. being um, processed across the board evenly. And so it is really important that we fix all of these things. We're going to have a couple of hearings on consolidation um, and market consolidation. Mm -hmm. We're going to, we need to dive into the FDA and the problems with the FDA in actually finding the issues with that facility, that plant in Michigan. And I think it is important for the president to look at the Defense Production Act um, and other ways to really increase the supply of baby food formula right here. But listen, if you're a parent, I know, you know, if you're a parent, this this is a crisis. And I sympathize yeah. with parents across the country dealing with this. This is hardly the first time that there's this slow rolling anticipated disaster 
happening exactly as forewarned, whether it's the exit from Afghanistan, the border surge. The Biden administration does not want to call this a crisis. You just called it a crisis. It's a crisis, right? I mean, I think if you're a parent that can't get formula for your kid, it's a crisis. I think that I was trying to explain all the different factors because I don't think it's true that we don't we can't access this baby formula. We can make some changes. We're going to do some things that will give more um, flexibility to the WIC program. We'll make sure that we get supplies across the board. And we do have to invest in you know getting more manufacturers producing formula. But I will just say there's also this market consolidation. You know, Jake, this is something I've been on. Um, because there is also profiteering. We had a briefing this morning. I can't go into detail about what was in the briefing, but from the FTC chair, Lena Khan, um, and we are looking at what are the ways also to address price gouging when these situations occur. These manufacturers have a responsibility to make sure this formula is available, accessible, and is not being, you know, the prices are being increased across the board just for profits. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to one of the criticisms we're, we're seeing on the right in, in conservative media uh, and Republican politicians uh, focusing on images from the border that show that there is formula available uh, at a processing center uh, for undocumented immigrants. Um, here's Fox this morning. She is saying that they are giving the formula, all these pallets of formula, to the illegal babies down on the border. Meanwhile, so many American families can't find this formula on their shelves in their stores. What terrible optics. Look anywhere where the president's cracked down on what's happening at the border. There's no sign of it. And if the president has his way in one week, it's going to quadruple. You know how much formula we're going to need then? Not exactly the uh, Algonquin roundtable. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to that. Well, I found it disgusting. Uh, I would never call a baby illegal. And this apparently from the party that says they're pro-life, pro-family, didn't want to fund the child tax credit so that millions of kids could come out of poverty, don't want to provide child care, don't want to provide paid leave, family leave. I don't need to be lectured by people who won't even stand up for the children that are right here and then use a crisis like this to, again, do what they've always done, demonize immigrants. Uh, That is, it's just ridiculous. Again, the reality is that we've got some issues we've got to address, supply chain plus market consolidation um, uh, issues, and we've got to make sure that we're getting this formula to all the states and, of course, increasing the, um, the, the supplies through the WIC program because, at the end of the day, it is yeah. black, brown, indigenous, and poor um, families who are most disproportionately burdened by this baby formula shortage. Democratic Congresswoman uh, Pramila Jayapal of Washington State, thank you so much. Have a good weekend. Coming up next, new satellite images you will only see on CNN. Bridges blown up as Russians retreat. Plus, the White House warning of a possible spike in COVID cases in the months ahead. But why not release the data behind that projection? I'll ask one of the president's top health advisors. Stay with us. In our world lead, the Kremlin says Russia will cut off gas-powered electricity exports to Finland as of tomorrow. Now, Russia is claiming this is due to late payments, but the timing, we should note, comes just one day after Finland publicly expressed support for joining NATO, which Russia, of course, opposes. In Ukraine today, the first war crimes trial against a Russian soldier began. A 21-year-old Russian is charged with killing an unarmed 62-year-old civilian riding a bicycle, The trial in the capital city of Kyiv comes as Ukrainian forces 
have taken back control of several villages near Kharkiv. And new satellite images show three bridges destroyed in that area. Russian units likely demolishing the bridges to protect from a counteroffensive as Ukrainian forces advance in the region. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh is in Kharkiv, where Ukrainian forces are making those gains. Charred, chewed and mauled, northern Kharkiv scars seem infinite. Putin's troops breathing artillery fire down the neck of this city of a million for two months. But even still, it's a shock to see just how close the Russians got on the other side of this road. We are told this is from demining, a controlled blast. Yet here, everything is fluid. Ukraine stopped Russia's advance here on the first day of the war, killing two soldiers by this armour. Three civilians shot dead in this car then, and their bodies recovered only two days ago. You can see the colossal force used against armour here. A tank turret literally that full distance thrown off the tank body. The village of Sirkuni lies ahead, liberated days earlier. People are starting to go back, he said, but they are still shelling it. Two women died two days ago when they walked onto tripwire traps set in the village. And even around these factories, special forces here warn us a soldier was wounded by a booby trap three days ago. The Z markings of Russia's invasion still a deranged sign of their collective insanity, even two months on. Why do they do this? Now they say they reclaimed this area about a week ago, but they're now in the difficult task of demining what they can. But look around here, there's really not much left to make safe. These civilians evacuated from the next village, Ruski Tushki, just two kilometres away. It's a nightmare, she says. The shooting is heavy, the driver adds, and we let them race on. Desperation takes different forms here, and caught by another kind of survival is Dmitri, whose wife moved away a while ago, wheeling back food he's got for his six dogs. I haven't really left my home for two months, he said. I crossed the fields, past the bomb fragments, to get the food. His gentle stroll in the open, a sign of how long the violence has swirled here, not that it is slowing. Now, we understand, Jake, tonight, as in the night before, that Surakuni has come under intense shelling. And that's part, it seems, of the Russian uh, operandus here, that they retreat shell what they leave behind and they do appear to be forming a pattern here of moving back towards their border often under intense duress from Ukrainian forces and you mentioned too earlier there do appear to be signs that as they're trying to protect the vital supply line to the east of where this retreat is occurring that runs from Belgorod in Russia right down to Izium where the bulk of their forces are that they may have destroyed some bridges to uh, increase their protection there but a lot moving back and forth in small incremental amounts around the front lines here and in the east in the center of the country and also in the south predominantly a stalemate though uh, the u.s mm-hmm. secretary of defense uh, lloyd austin speaking 
to his counterpart in Russia, Sergei Shoigu, uh, just today to keep that communication line open. The rest of the call not entirely clear, but interesting it occurs right now that the stalemate here quite palpable, Jake. Nick Payton Walsh, thanks so much. Here with me to discuss is Congressman Adam Smith of Washington State. He's the chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. Mr. Chairman, thanks for joining us. So CNN is reporting that Russia has said they're going to stop sending electricity to Finland as of tomorrow. They say it's due to a problem in receiving payments, but this comes just a day after Finland's leaders expressed public support for joining NATO. Do you think this is Russia retaliation? Uh, and should uh, neighboring countries expect to see more of it from Russia? No, absolutely. We've seen this already. Russia has cut off. I think they cut off Poland. I forget who else. You know, they're trying to leverage uh, their energy uh, sales to put pressure on NATO countries. But, you know, the, the EU, NATO, countries like Finland, Sweden, they have been remarkably resilient in resisting that pressure um, and finding alternatives and working with partners and allies uh, to fill the gaps the Russians are leaving. But, yeah, there's no question this is a retaliatory step and a step to try to stop Finland from being from wanting to join NATO. But it does not appear to be working. It appears to be having the opposite effect. It lets countries like Finland know that they need allies that they can rely on because Russia is going to continue to threaten them in a variety of ways. Russian forces are continuing to retreat from some Ukrainian villages in the Kharkiv region. Do you think there's a direct line between the growing success of the Ukrainian army and the increased aid and equipment coming from the U.S. and, and some other uh, Western countries. There's absolutely no doubt about it. Um, it has been a united effort across uh, NATO and a number of other allies as well have been able to get forces in. I, I spoke with the chairman of the Ukraine Defense Committee, uh, their, their RADA, this morning, um, and he was incredibly thankful in particular for the howitzers that we were able to send in. They are getting the ammunition to push back against the Russians and to take advantage of the Russian weaknesses, the weaknesses that have been well documented uh, in their supply lines and the morale of their troops. It's having a huge difference now. Now, Russia is still, they're still moving in, particularly down south around Kyrgyzstan. Uh, but the support that has been given to the Ukrainians and the incredible mm -hmm. will they have to fight is clearly making a difference. Earlier this week, the House passed the $40 billion aid package for Ukraine. It was expected to pass the Senate quickly, but Kentucky Senator Rand Paul uh, insisted on adding a provision that would uh, create an inspector general to monitor the disbursement of the $40 billion I have to say that probably doesn't sound all that unreasonable to a lot of our viewers. What's the problem? Why not, why not just add a watchdog to oversee $40 billion? Well, we are going, going to add watchdogs. The, the problem is that it slows down the passage of this aid because the House passed it. If they change it in the Senate, then we will have to pass it again. And there is incredible urgency in this. As you know, the original authority that the president has had uh, is running out, is gone. Uh, so it's a procedural issue. It's a matter of how quickly we move this. I can't speak to why the Senate didn't resolve it earlier, why Senator Paul didn't bring it up earlier. Uh, but we know Senator Paul is not supportive of the aid itself. Um, he's not supportive of a lot of U.S. actions uh, in the world. So while this um, offer is reasonable, it's not being offered just for that. It's being offered to try and slow down the process. <coughs> and that's what the Senate has gotten bogged down in. Look, I mean, the Senate is an impossible body to work in. I have enormous <coughs> sympathy for the senators that I work with. You know, one person can mess things up at any stage in the process. But understand, this isn't about whether or not we have an inspector general. This is about how quickly we actually get the aid out. Uh, there's also bipartisan support for the inspector general. We just don't want to stop the aid from getting to Ukraine while we try to figure that out.
All right, Congressman Adam Smith uh, of Washington, thanks so much, Mr. Chairman. Appreciate it. See how facial recognition technology is playing a major part in Russia's war in Ukraine. That's next. Continuing with our world lead today, one of the many challenges facing Ukraine's government and military is identifying and handling the bodies of Russian soldiers who have been killed and the Russian military has left behind. CNN's Sarah Seidner takes a look now at how they're using technology both to help with this difficult task and to help advance their aims in the propaganda war with Moscow. We need to warn you, though, of course, some of the images in this report you may find disturbing. Inside this refrigerated train car, a gruesome sight. The bodies of Russian soldiers packed and stacked for storage. Look, this is looted. Every Russian soldier who is stored here as a dead body has committed a crime against Ukraine, he says. Storing the bodies of the enemy aligns with the rules of war set out by the Geneva Convention, he says. After the end of the active phase of combat, the parties must exchange the bodies of dead military. But they have to try to identify the dead men first. This is where the Ministry of Digital Transformation comes in. We have identified about 300 cases, he says. They do it by using a myriad of techniques, but the most effective has been facial recognition technology. They upload a picture of a face... The technology scrubs all the social networks. It's really fast. Once they have a match, they go one step further. We send messages to their friends and relatives. These are often gruesome photos of dead soldiers. Why do you send them to the families in Russia? There are two goals. One is to show the Russians there's a real war going on here, to fight against the Russian propaganda, to show them they're not as strong as they're shown on TV and Russians really are dying here. The second goal is to give them an opportunity to pick up the bodies in Ukraine. They do get responses from Russian families. They're responding with basically saying, you will be killed, I will come, and I will also yes, take part yes. in this war. Eighty percent of the family's answers are, we'll come to Ukraine ourselves and kill you, and you deserve what's happening to you. What about that 20 percent? Some of them say they're grateful and they know about the situation, and some would like to come and pick up the body. The technology is not just being used on the dead. It is also being used to identify Russian soldiers who are alive, some of whom are being accused of war crimes. We have established the identity of one military man. We have a lot of materials, irreputable evidence, this prosecutor says. This is footage of the Russian military man he's talking about. He says he was caught on video in Belarus trying to sell items he had looted from Ukrainian homes. But his alleged crimes go far beyond that. The soldier is accused of taking part in the execution of four Ukrainian men with their hands bound behind their backs. CNN obtained new video of the scene just before shots were fired. You can see what appears to be soldiers standing around and a man on his knees on the ground to the right of them. 
Prosecutors say the soldier was first identified by the technology and then by a Ukrainian citizen who said the soldier tortured him after entering his home. We showed these photos to the witnesses and victims. They identified the specific person who was among other Russian military personnel who killed four people in this particular place, the prosecutor said. The end result of all their investigations, they hope, will be a full record of what happened in Ukraine and the proof they need to prosecute those who committed crimes against its people. I couldn't help but ask the Ministry of Digital Transformation how they felt about sending those gruesome photos of dead soldiers to the families. And his response was, this is our job. They have done crimes against Ukraine. And frankly, they made the choice to come here and kill us. This is our job, this is our duty, and we'll continue to do it. Jake? Sarah Seidner in Odessa, Ukraine, for us. Thank you so much. And get this, researchers say today better vaccination rates could have prevented half of all COVID deaths in the U.S. That's 319,000 lives that could have been saved. But about what about now? Is the U.S. doing enough now to get more people vaccinated? I'm going to talk to Dr. Anthony Fauci next. In our health lead, the White House is ramping up pressure on Congress for new COVID funding as hospitalizations and infections tick up in parts of the United States. Numbers are nowhere near the height of the pandemic, of course, but 29 states now report more people in the hospital with COVID in the last two weeks. This as the new White House COVID czar warns of 100 million infections this fall and winter if more mitigation efforts do not happen. Joining us now to discuss President Biden's chief medical advisor and the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Fauci, good to see you. Let's start with this warning uh, from Dr. Ja. Um, you've said 100 million could be a worst case scenario, but you know the, the, the lack of trust that people have these days, the public versus health officials and the government, et cetera. Why not have the White House release the modeling behind this projection to, to help convince lawmakers that there, there is a need here, there is a real risk? Well, well, Jake, it isn't a question of releasing the models. I mean, the models really vary. And as I've told you in previous interviews, the model is only as good as the assumptions you put into the model. And they can change. And obviously, we're dealing with a, a fluid and dynamic situation with the cases going up. Not really sure what the variant will be as we get into the fall. So it really was an estimate. And those estimates are soft. And the real bottom line reason for it was to just make sure that we're prepared for the possibility that we will see that degree of a surge where you're talking about 100 million cases over the fall and winter. Remember, when Omicron hit in its big peak, about 30 percent of the country got infected. That was a really big surge there. So even though we're not sure what's going to happen, you can make some broad estimates. There's a new report that says better vaccination rates could have prevented half of the U.S. COVID deaths since the vaccine was available early 2021. Um, only 66% of the country right now is fully vaccinated, meaning about a third of the country is not. Uh, even fewer Americans, uh, just over 100 million people in the U.S., have gotten the vaccine and a booster. There's not one state in the United States that's reached 50% mark on boosters. It is hard to argue that the public education part of the vaccine campaign has completely worked. Yet I still don't see evidence that the government is using creative ways to, ways to reach people who refuse to get vaccinated, such as 
using Donald wor- Trump's words about how the vaccines work to, to appeal to his fans. Why, why not? You know, I, I can't address the issue of whether we should use uh, former President Trump's words, but I have to tell you, um, Jake, it is really painful uh, as a scientist, a physician, and a public health official to see the overwhelming data that show the difference between vaccinated versus unvaccinated and boosted when it comes to hospitalizations and deaths. We really have tried, you know, virtually everything. I mean, I'm a little bit at a loss for what further we can do when you have this disparity of morbidity and mortality that's staring you right in the face. And it's amazing. We have one million deaths, and you're absolutely right. I mean, the estimates vary, but certainly we could have prevented at least a few hundred thousand of those deaths if people who were eligible to be vaccinated got vaccinated. I don't have any any really smart yeah. and great answers for how we can do better, but I would just wish people would look at the data and believe the data. It's not made up. It's real. Yeah. Uh, I know you don't tweet from the White House account, but I wanted to raise this because amazingly, this White House tweet is still up. Uh, They tweeted it yesterday. It says, quote, when President Biden took office, millions were unemployed and there was no vaccine available. And it goes on from there. But as you know, that's not true. There was vaccine available. It might not have been widely available, but it was available. CNN fact checker Daniel Dale points out more than three million Americans had been fully vaccinated. More than 18 million had at least one shot by Inauguration Day. I think President Biden, then President-elect Biden, had had two shots by then. You're the president's chief medical advisor. Why is the White House politicizing the pandemic by tweeting out that there was no vaccine available until Joe Biden became president? It's not true. You know, Jake, I'm sorry. I I can't explain every tweet that comes out. Uh, So you're talking to the wrong person. I wasn't involved in the tweet. I I just can't explain it. Uh, Sorry. But but you, I know you can't explain it, but certainly you would agree that it's important to have facts uh, when it comes to assertions being made about the vaccine, whether it's from the Trump White House or the or the Biden White House. And certainly you would agree that there was vaccine available before Joe Biden became president. Yeah, of course. I mean, he got vaccinated and others got vaccinated. So, I mean, I think from a pure accuracy That's not a correct statement. But I mean, you know, it just went out. I'm sorry. There's nothing I could do about that, Jake. All right. Well, I think you've done something by just pointing out that it's inaccurate. Dr. Anthony Fauci, thank you so much. Have a good weekend. Really appreciate it. Coming up, Israeli police beat mourners at a funeral procession for a Palestinian-American journalist who'd been killed. The shocking video and what led to the attack. That's next. Also in our world lead today, more flashpoints in the rising violence between Israelis and Palestinians. An Israeli soldier was killed today during a counterterrorism raid at the Jenin Palestinian refugee camp in the West Bank. The Palestinian Health Ministry says 13 people were injured there. This comes as funeral services were held for Palestinian-American Al Jazeera correspondent Shireen Abu Akleh, who was shot and killed earlier this week while covering another Israeli military operation at the Jenin camp. An investigation into who killed her is underway, though Al Jazeera blames the Israeli military. As Atika Schubert shows us now, what happened at today's funeral only further fueled already existing outrage. Muslim prayers at a Catholic hospital, a display of Palestinian solidarity for Shireen Abu Akhleh from strangers and family alike. 
her niece, Lorena Abu Akhle. She meant everything to me and clearly to everyone we can see. Uh, she made a huge impact on Palestine and all the people. She left, a, she left her fingerprint in everyone's heart. But as the funeral procession began, Israeli riot police first blocked the coffin from moving forward, then charged, hitting several pallbearers with batons, the coffin nearly falling to the ground. Things are very tense here. The funeral procession tried to walk out of the hospital gates. Israeli police did not allow it. They threw in tear gas, had flash bombs here, tried to disperse the crowds. And now it appears the hearse, the car, is being brought here to try to bring the coffin out. Israeli police insist that they acted against stone throwing by mourners, providing this video as evidence. But CNN did not see any stones but did witness dozens of plastic bottles being thrown at police. What is clear is that Israeli police ultimately used force to try and contain this outpouring of grief and anger. Shireen Abu Akhle was beloved by Palestinian viewers for giving them a voice and chronicling their struggles. Born and raised here, Jerusalem was her home. Israeli authorities did finally permit the family to bring her coffin to the church by car. Thousands of mourners were also ultimately allowed to swell the streets, carrying her atop a river of grief, anger, and defiance to her final resting place at the Mount Zion Cemetery. Even at her own funeral, it seems Shireen Abu Akhle gave voice to the struggles and frustrations of so many Palestinians. It was a tremendous outpouring of solidarity, Jake, by the Palestinian community. Uh, and this was really the biggest Palestinian funeral we've seen in East Jerusalem since the death of uh, one of the biggest anyway, since the death of Yasser Arafat in 2004. Just to give you a sense of just how beloved she was, uh, all of the different denominations of the Christian churches in the old city rang bells for her funeral. That is an unprecedented thing to happen for a funeral here in Jerusalem, Jake. All right, Atika Schubert in Jerusalem for us. Thank you so much. She's been locked up in Russia since February, accused of smuggling drugs with cannabis oil in her luggage. The ruling today, keeping American basketball star Brittany Griner detained even longer. That's ahead. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, all eyes turning to Pennsylvania ahead of Tuesday's critical primaries. What happens when a Trump-backed TV doctor, a former radio show host who's too extreme for Fox, and a conservative hedge fund executives all try to out-mega each other. Plus, it is the end of an era at one of the country's most controversial police departments after 20 years of federal government oversight. Will the Oakland, California police return to their old ways? And leading this hour, the Ukrainian military says it has retaken villages outside the city of Kharkiv in the eastern part of Ukraine. This as Ukraine begins its first war crimes prosecution against a Russian soldier since Putin's unprovoked invasion began at the end of February. A 21-year-old Russian has been charged with killing a 62-year-old man riding a bicycle, unarmed. CNN's Melissa Bell was at the courthouse today in Kiev, and she starts us off with our coverage. A warning, this report contains disturbing images. Still at war with Russia, but already fighting for justice. Ukraine's opened its first war crimes trial. A 21-year-old Russian soldier, Vadim Shishimarin, accused of shooting an unarmed civilian on the fourth day of the war. 
So far, Ukraine's identified 11,239 alleged war crimes, according to the country's prosecutor. They include the massacre of 300 unarmed civilians in Bucha and the killing of many hundreds of civilians, mainly women and children, in the more than two-month-long siege of Kharkiv. We have now some evidences that commanders gave the orders shot civilians. But from other side, we understand that uh, ordinary soldiers have their own responsibility for this atrocity. And that, says Irina Venediktova, is a message that needs to be sent now, so that Russian soldiers understand there will be no impunity, even as the fighting in regions like Luhansk continues. She says she's been helped in gathering facts by the many foreign forensic teams working in towns like Bucha, evidence that will also be used by the International Criminal Court as it investigates both Russia's overall aggression in Ukraine and the individual war crimes allegedly committed by Russian soldiers, which Russia denies. And states have to understand they cannot use the armies to invade another country and they cannot use the army to kill civilians. For now, though, it is in this small courthouse in Kyiv that Ukrainian justice will have its first say. But can a trial be fair during a war? Shishimarin's Ukrainian lawyer says he has faith in the impartiality of the country's judiciary and that the court can be trusted to make a reasoned decision. He has yet to enter a plea. The Kremlin's spokesman says he has no information about the case, but the size of the media pack inside spoke to the interest and emotion involved on all sides. Shishimarin's court translator telling CNN at the end of the hearing that she, for her part, felt no anger towards the 21-year-old who could face life in jail. After all, she told us, the tears of Russian mothers are salty too. Jake, there will be many more tears to come on both sides and many more trials to come, many of them in international courts. The problem with international justice, as we've seen since it was born at the Nuremberg trials at the end of the Second World War, is that it takes time and it tends to happen after the event. These uh, trials, says the country's prosecutor, are happening even while the war is unfolding. That not only brings justice to the victims of those alleged crimes that have already taken place, but she believes will help prevent further crimes from taking place, or at least change the nature of the mindset of soldiers who for the time being have believed that they've been able to act with impunity. And that's why she says it's essential that they should take place. Jake. Melissa Bell reporting live for us from Kyiv. Thank you so much. Let's bring in Andriy Zagoroniak. He's the former Ukrainian minister of defense. He now serves as an advisor to the Ukrainian oh. government. Um, thanks so much for joining us. I want to get your reaction to Ukraine holding its first war crimes trial. Um, are you confident this is going to be a fair trial? Yes, yeah, absolutely. First of all, uh, first of all, there is, uh, you know, a, a process which uh, Ukrainian legislation uh, has currently is fully meets international standards. Secondly, we obviously understand that there will be a huge attention to this from the whole international community, including advisors who came from various uh, European countries uh, to advise Ukrainian government on that. And there are forensic advisors and there are lawyers and, and so on. So Ukraine specifically does this very openly in order to uh, ensure that this is recognized and this holds credible around the world. So, yeah, for that reason alone, it's, uh, it should be, uh, should be very transparent. Ukraine's prosecutor general's office uh, has told CNN that more than 11,000, 11,000 alleged war crimes 
by Russian soldiers are currently being yeah. investigated. How do you even begin to prosecute that many war crimes? Yeah, it's uh, very difficult. It's uh, and it's, we're just in the two months of war, and uh, we we realize that uh, a lot of these uh, crimes have a very similar pattern, and that gives us uh, um, you know reason to believe that this was used as a weapon. So it's a terror as a weapon, it's rape as a weapon, it's like uh, you know destruction of the civilian infrastructure as a weapon. So uh, all that uh, obviously will be qualified, but that's a huge task. Yeah, and that's why again uh, Ukraine is going to rely on international community because. Uh, only when you are open, like Nuremberg trial, only only that type of trials will be will be internationally recognized and uh, and uh, supported. So that's why we we are in front of the very serious process, uh, which will take I don't know even for how long. But there's a lot of a lot of things to to investigate, unfortunately. Unfortunately, yeah. Satellite images show Russian forces have pulled back from the northeast region of Kharkiv, where there does appear to be a powerful counter-offensive by Ukrainian forces. How do you interpret yep. this development? Well, first of all, uh, let's not forget that Russians collected all their possible forces in order to uh, to do that, what they called battle on, on Donbass, and they're failing. And uh, what, that, that, that explains a lot, and uh, that shows that Russian army is far less effective than uh, many uh, military experts believed. So Ukraine is motivated, Ukraine is more efficient, and uh, Ukraine is less we- we- has less weapons. But we are trying very hard, and uh, that's what gives us a trust that there will be a victory at the end. That's very, that's very clear. There, there have been... Re- There have been reports of morale issues, low morale among Russian troops. Is that a factor in Ukraine's success? Yes, and there are two factors in morale issues which we need to distinguish. First of all, they have no idea what they're doing and why they're doing this. Uh, They are uh, clearly understand that they're losing. They clearly understand that they have a very bad uh, support and logistics and uh, command and control uh, situation is is very significant, you know, like problems. So that's one thing. And the other thing is that uh, generally the Russian doctrine and the Russian organization is based on Soviet. And there it's it's highly centralized, highly bureaucratical and has no respect for humans at all, including their own. They don't pick up their bodies. They, They don't care how many soldiers they lose. And they're losing already far more than expected. And obviously that uh, is, creates a low morale because people understand that their commanders are not caring about them. And that's, uh, that's a f- massive factor in, the, in their performance. So Ukraine's defense chief says Ukraine is now in the long phase of the war. What does that mean to you? How long do you see this playing out? Uh, that depends on one specific factor. It's how much equipment uh, we're going to receive from the West and when and in which specification. So what types of equipment? Because if we uh, receive what we're asking for, uh, that will still last months. But uh, this year, uh, and I was sometimes saying as early as October, we can already clear the area which they took since 24th of February. Uh, but if we receive uh, piece by piece, like a long, uh, long sort of piecemeal approach of uh, provision of the weapons, then yes, yeah, then this thing may go for, 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 for much more. And uh, we are categorically uh, not interested in, uh, in a protracted war because this will exhaust um, our allies, this will exhaust uh, Ukrainian economy and so on. So it's in everybody's interest to finish this as soon as we can. And it's possible. Former Minister... Former Minister of Defense, uh, Andriy Zagorodnyak, thank you so much. Good to see you, sir. Appreciate it. WNBA star and Olympic gold medalist Brittany Griner just appeared in her Russian courtroom. The upsetting ruling next. Then fires destroying houses in moments. 
dust storms, homes being washed away, temperatures so hot it's causing bridges to collapse, the destruction from the climate crisis. That's ahead. Stay with us. Also on our world lead, Russia's state news agency says a court has extended the detention of U.S. basketball star Brittany Griner. The predominant athlete was arrested back in February at a Russian airport charged with drug smuggling. Let's get the latest from CNN's Polo Sandoval. Uh, Polo, um, Griner's now going to be held until June 18th, but a U.S. official did get a chance to speak with her. Yeah, Jake, it was a State Department spokesperson that said that Brittany Griner actually had an opportunity to speak briefly to a U.S. embassy official on the sidelines during Friday's court appearance. They confirmed that she is doing well, or at least as best as she can, uh, given what's, what's happening right now in these exceedingly difficult circumstances. The WNBA also weighing in after today's news, saying that it was expected as they continue to push for the release of the two-time Olympic gold medal winner. The big question now as we go into the weekend is, uh, is this perhaps bringing her closer to standing trial in a Russian courtroom, or will she be released and returned to the United States before her case actually reaches that point? Today, the State Department also, we heard them reiterate what they said just last week, saying that she is being, quote, wrongfully detained. Uh, She's been in Russian custody for the last three months now, arrested in mid-February when cannabis oil was allegedly found in her luggage after landing at an airport in Moscow. There's video from that day during that screening. She was charged with drug smuggling and now faces up to 10 years in prison if convicted. Now, the U.S. efforts to actually free her, uh, it's really now in the hands of the Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs. They may sound familiar. This is that same office that recently played a very key role, Jake, in securing the release of uh, Marine veteran Trevor Reed from Russian custody after that prisoner swap not long ago. Yeah, what a great day that was. Also, Apollo, the U.S. and Russia are in a war of words about whether Brittany Griner's detention can be called illegal? Yeah, not long after the Biden administration basically escalated its efforts to get her back into the United States, uh, Russian officials responding to that, saying, at least we we heard from the Russian Foreign Ministry's office, saying that uh, they maintain that these charges, they are serious, and also her detention was based on what they described as objective fact and evidence. And then they took it a little further in saying that the State Department's efforts to try to bring her back to the United States, that they consider those an attempt to cast doubt on the validity of the detention. But ultimately, though, her family Family, the big fear among many of her supporters is that she'll simply be used as a political pawn as those tensions between the U.S. and Russia continue to escalate. Paulo Sandoval, thank you so much. A quick programming note. Be sure to tune in this Sunday when CNN's Farid Zakaria asks experts why Vladimir Putin is trying to destroy Ukraine and whether he can be stopped. Inside the Mind of Vladimir Putin begins Sunday evening at 8 o'clock Eastern and Pacific. Coming up, the Pennsylvania Republican Senate candidate who has Donald Trump nervous. That's next. It is not a common time in the Commonwealth. We're just four days away from the highly anticipated Pennsylvania primary elections. And for Republicans, a last-minute wild card in the Senate race is causing major concerns among the Republican Party leadership. Most of the race so far has been focused on Trump-backed Dr. Mehmet Oz and former hedge fund manager David McCormick, but conservative political commentator and former radio show host Kathy Barnett has surged in recent polls, leading Trump allies to sound the alarm. They say that Barnett is not a well-vetted candidate. Now, it is true that we have known for months that Barnett is one of the most vociferous sharers of lies about the 2020 presidential election. 
And now CNN's K-File has uncovered a history of straight-up bigotry, anti-Muslim and anti-gay statements made by Barnett. This, for example, is what she said on her radio show right after the Supreme Court ruled, ruling cleared the way for same-sex marriage in July 2015. Two men sleeping together. Two men holding hands. Two men caressing. That is not normal. If love is the litmus test, who are we to say, well, your love is legitimate love, same-sex couples, but your love, father and daughter, is not legitimate? Or your love, one man and three women, is not legitimate? Or one older man and a 12-year-old child? If love is the litmus test, it becomes a very slippery slope. And that is where we, we find ourselves today. Also in 2015, Barnett attacked transgender Olympic champion Caitlyn Jenner as, quote, deformed and, quote, demonic and warned of a, quote, takeover by the, quote, homosexual agenda. Does not stop there, of course. Barnett also frequently shared the insane conspiracy theory that former President Barack Obama is a practicing Muslim. Here's just a sampling of some of those past tweets with phrases such as he's a Muslim, Muslim Obama, and don't we get it? Obama is a Muslim. And in a speech uploaded to YouTube in 2015, Barnett argued it was okay to discriminate against Muslims and compared rejecting Islam to rejecting Hitler's or Stalin's worldviews. You are not a racist if you reject Islam or if you reject, reject Muslims because they are not a race of people. They are a particular view. There are people that have a particular view of the world and we have a right to discriminate against worldviews. We discriminated against Hitler's Nazi Germany view of the world, right? That was a worldview. That's how he saw the world around him. And we discriminated against it. We rejected it. We rejected Stalin's view, communist view of the world, right? Because that's a particular view of the world that we don't agree with. Just straight up ignorant religious bigotry. Whoever wins the Republican primary on Tuesday is likely to face off against one of two well-known Pennsylvania Democrats, either current Congressman Connor Lamb or current Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman. CNN's Casey Hunt traveled to York County in southern Pennsylvania to see how the race is shaping up with just days to go. Standing six feet, eight inches tall in gym shorts and a hoodie, you'd never assume John Fetterman is a politician, let alone the Democratic frontrunner for Senate. Your county? Is your county a blue county? No! Greeted like a celebrity at a local bar here? The tattooed Pennsylvania lieutenant governor is the heavy favorite to win Tuesday's Democratic Senate primary here in Swing State, Pennsylvania. We have to flip this seat. That will be tough for any Democrat. Just 33 percent of Pennsylvania voters say President Biden is doing a good job. And because this race could decide control of the Senate, Republicans are prepared to pour in millions of dollars, airing attack ads even tougher than the ones he's faced from his own party. Republicans think they'd crush socialist Fetterman. Fetterman supported Bernie Sanders for president, backs legalizing marijuana, and used to call himself a progressive. You did say in 2021, I've run as a progressive before it was cool to do so. 
Yeah, so I, why won't you say you're running as a progressive now? Uh, I, because the party has shifted to my platform. Democratic opponent Connor Lamb criticized Fetterman for an incident in 2013 where he pulled a gun on a man who turned out to be an unarmed black jogger. Fetterman has refused to apologize. I just think that's disqualifying for any of us who have to work hard to gain the trust of the black community. Fetterman will have to answer for that and defend himself against Republican attacks on issues like abortion, immigration and crime. He even wants to reduce jail time for murderers. John Fetterman, too dangerous for Pennsylvania. You've worked really hard to help fr- yeah. uh, free people uh, yeah. from prison. Mm-hmm. Are you concerned at all that your record on that is going to come back to bite no. you in a general election? And you know what? If, if it is, they can bring it on. Do you think our southern border is ad- adequately secured right now? Uh, I've always been a, an advocate for a, a secure border, but a compassionate and common sense immigration reform. Let's talk about abortion for a second. Do you support any restrictions on abortion? I don't. I've always believed... Even in the third trimester? I, I, I believe that choice is between a woman, her doctor, and a god if she prays to one. Republicans are guaranteed to use his policy positions against him, and the national mood gives the GOP a clear advantage against any generic Democrat. But John Fetterman is anything but generic. Basic, core, democratic principles. I don't even think they're democratic. I think they're just... Universal truths. Universal truth, you know? Can you live on 725 an hour? No. It seems like some Democrats before you may have seated blue-collar voters here in Pennsylvania. Not not this campaign. You know, we you know, we don't change our message or we don't pander, but we talk about those core universal principles and values and we show up in every community, you know, the, some of the reddest counties. And now in our hyper divided political world, you know, where it's ultra MAGA or reasonable political beliefs where you can have some mild disagreements. You know, we believe we're going to be coming down on the right side of history and policy. And that's the kind of campaign that we're running. So whether Fetterman can win a general election will obviously depend on who he ends up running against, as you outlined. But it's also going to depend on how excited Democrats are going to be to get out and vote for him. Black voters in particular are such an important part of the Democratic base in Pennsylvania. And he really may have some work to do there after the attacks from his primary rivals over that 2013 incident with the unarmed black jogger. Jake. All right, Casey Hahn, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's discuss uh, Alyssa. Uh, Let's go back to Kathy Barnett, um, who is surging in the polls uh, and apparently denying that she sent some of the tweets that clearly she sent and clearly fit in perfectly with things that she has been saying for years that are homophobic and anti-Muslim and bigoted in other ways. Uh, Are you worried as a Republican who wants to capture that that seat? Are you worried about her getting the nomination? Yeah, and what's happening is pretty stunning if you think about it. There's just been so much oxygen around Dr. Oz and Dave McCormick, and that's where all the focus has been. And then out of left field, this very extremist candidate who frankly makes Oz and McCormick, who have run very, very MAGA, look almost moderate compared to some of her positions, is now surging. This brings back some memories of the 2010 Tea Party wave where extremist candidates, Christine O'Donnell in Delaware comes to mind, got the nomination of the party, but then ultimately lost. I mean, Jake, you're from Pennsylvania. You know the state well. This is a state that has, you know, traditionally had, it's, it's, it's purple in many ways. We forget Donald Trump didn't win Pennsylvania. So running on an extremist far-right platform is not a winning message if you're actually trying to pick up a Senate seat. Uh, Ashley, uh, to, to go to the Democratic side, it's not difficult to anticipate how that 2013 event from Fetterman's past where he stopped that black jogger at gunpoint 
how that could be used against him in the general election, at the very least uh, to create some lack of enthusiasm for people to vote for him uh, among the black community or anybody else offended by that action. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the incident in 2013 is a terrible one. The the person that he held at gunpoint um, seems to be innocent. And we don't want those type of in- incidents to happen with police and in- innocent people or with uh, citizens and uh, another citizen. I do think he needs to get ahead of it now in the primary, deal with it. Uh, it's unfortunate that he doesn't want to apologize, even though he's a Democrat. I'm not going to give him a pass on this. Um, race is a real race is an issue within political races, for sure. We saw it come up uh, in 2020, and I think it will uh, definitely come up in his throughout the remainder of the days before the primary on Tuesday, but also um, in the general as well in November. Alyssa, let's look to Georgia, which that comes that election is coming up as well. Not this Tuesday, but but in two weeks. We, today we learned that uh, former Vice President Mike Pence, he's going to go rally for the incumbent Republican governor, Brian Kemp, before the night of the election. This is a very public split between Pence and Trump because uh, Trump has criticized Governor Kemp for upholding the law in Georgia. He endorsed former Senator David Perdue, who's running against him in the race. I don't think these two have disagreed so publicly uh, on an issue uh, since uh, hang Mike Pence. Well, and by the way, Georgia, yet another state that Donald Trump did not win in, but is meddling in the political races of. Um, Yeah, uh, Pence has committed to backing incumbent governors, including Kemp, and Kemp is surging in the polls. He's an effective governor. He's um, largely popular within the Republican Party in the state. And David Perdue, somebody who, when he was in the Senate, was seen as a a, a pro-Trump, but like a sensible person decided to launch his entire campaign on the big lie. His announcement video, his opening statements in the first debate was basically the election was stolen. So I'm not surprised that voters are rejecting him. Um, I think it's great that Pence is supporting the incumbent. I think you're going to see more uh, prominent Republicans break with the former president. I would note in Pennsylvania, Mike Pompeo is a big backer of Dave McCormick's, despite the fact that Trump has endorsed Dr. Oz. Um, And listen, it all has bearings for 2024. If it turns out that Trump Trump is more of a spoiler in winnable races because he goes more with grievance than with actually smart political endorsements. I think that could really help someone like a Mike Pence or a Mike Pompeo. Yeah, we also see it with uh, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley endorsing Congresswoman Nancy Mace against a Trump-backed challenger. So you are starting to see a little bit of this, even from strong Trump supporters breaking from him. Ashley, you worked on the Biden campaign. You know how these races work. What are you looking for in Georgia and Pennsylvania when it comes to not only how Trump's candidates fare, uh, but voter turnout? Yeah, you know, my job on the Biden campaign was to talk to the broadest coalition possible. And so that definitely means black voters in a state like Pennsylvania and Georgia, but Asian American voters, um, Latino voters, people who don't necessarily always participate because they aren't spoken to in primaries. People should be knocking on those doors as well. Um, Working class folks, suburban moms, who that does not just mean white suburban moms, but people who live in the suburbs, they really need to build the broadest coalition coalition to get through the primary, but definitely in the general, because I think both of these races are going to be tight um, on the governor's side, as well as in both the Senate race in Georgia, as well as the Senate races in Pennsylvania. Let's turn to North Carolina, another state that's having a primary soon. There's new CNN reporting about how House Republicans are privately and frankly, some of them publicly rooting 
for Congressman Madison Cawthorn to lose his race. He's being primaried Tuesday. Um, Alyssa, one of Cawthorn's biggest cheerleaders, former President Trump, he's not exactly coming to Cawthorn's rescue. I mean, he has supported him. He's made it clear that Cawthorn's his guy, but he could be doing much more. Why isn't he? It's a great question. Uh, Madison Cawthorn, a former intern of mine, actually, um, has just had scandal after scandal since being in Congress. And I know I actually heard the former president when I was still working for him year, uh, over a year ago say, you know, Madison Cawthorn has the look. He looks like a congressman. That doesn't really carry much weight, though, when you're not actually delivering for the citizens of the district, North Carolina's 11th district that he that he represents. Uh, Tom Tillis, the senator from North Carolina, has come out and backed his one of his opponents. Uh, Madison's got an uphill battle here. And I have been surprised by Trump's silence on it. But um, if I had to guess, maybe his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, is getting in his ear that there's somebody else who could be a more formidable pro-Trump candidate there that won't be an embarrassment to the party. Ashley, Republicans are preparing for scenarios where Cawthorn does win this primary, which is entirely possible. One Republican lawmaker told CNN, quote, I met with the guy and said, don't break the law again. You break the law one more time. I'm going to start calling for you to be kicked out. And I don't mean kicked out of the House Freedom Caucus. I mean kicked out of the Republican conference, voting him out. He's a black eye on our conference. These are these are referring references to Cawthorn being cited twice for bringing a gun to the airport, getting caught driving with a, a with a revoked license for the second time in five years and on and on. What do you make of this all? I mean, he's a disaster, and I think the Republicans are trying to distance themselves as much as possible because they are going to have issues in their caucus regardless if they take the House or not, and they don't need a distraction like um, him trying to run their, their caucus down. So I think he's a disaster, and they're trying to distance themselves from him. All right, Ashley and Alyssa, thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Have a great weekend to both of you. Coming up, it's a decision that could cause a surge of migrants on the U.S.-Mexican border. And now a judge is going to decide if the Biden administration will be allowed to reverse that Trump-era rule. Stay with us. In our politics lead, a federal judge just heard arguments on whether to block the Biden administration's plan to end the controversial pandemic-era border restrictions known as Title 42 10 days from now. Now, as you may recall... The rules allow Border Patrol agents to quickly return some migrants, mostly to Mexico, without the opportunity to seek asylum because of the COVID pandemic. More than 20 states have sued to stop the Biden administration from ending these restrictions. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez joins us now from li- live from Lafayette, Louisiana. And Priscilla, the, the hearing wrapped up a short while ago. You're inside the courtroom for the arguments. What happened? Well, for more than two hours, Jake, a judge wrestled with whether the Biden administration can end Title 42 in just 10 days. Now, as you mentioned, more than 20 states had filed a lawsuit against the Biden administration's decision to want to terminate this authority. And today, Arizona Deputy Solicitor General Drew Ensign argued on behalf of the states. And those arguments really focused on the harm to the states and the costs they might incur, specifically health care costs, if potentially more migrants are released into the U.S., And they argued that the administration didn't take the right steps when it terminated the authority. The Biden administration, for its part, saying that Title 42 was an extraordinary measure meant uh, for a public health emergency and that it is entirely up to the CDC director to either invoke or terminate it. Now, the judge chimed in occasionally, mostly focused his questions on the harm to the states. 
uh, as well as whether the administration took the right steps. But he did not rule, instead saying that he would take it all under consideration and rule within the next 10 days before that May 23rd deadline. Jake? It's so discordant because the administration is also warning of a surge of COVID uh, coming up in the fall and winter. But in any case, uh, officials are warning of a potentially record-breaking surge of migrants now on the southern border, specifically if Title 42 is rescinded. What, What do we know about that? The Department of Homeland Security is certainly preparing for that. They're bolstering capacity along the border, surging personnel, uh, as well as leveraging partnerships with federal agencies. And they're doing that because they anticipate there's pent-up demand and because of deteriorating conditions in Latin America. But what officials say they're expecting less of is people crossing the border multiple times unlawfully. And that has been happening more often, and it is contributing to the large numbers because there's little to no consequence for repeat crossers under Title 42. That is not the case under immigration law, where consequences are levied against those repeat crossers. But again, all of this is up in the air uh, as a judge decides on the fate of Title 42 in the days ahead. Jake? All right, Priscilla Alvarez in Lafayette, Louisiana, thanks so much. Can 20 years of federal oversight really change how police operate? One American City is about to find out. In our national lead now, federal oversight of Oakland, California's embattled police department may soon be over. You might remember back in 2003, federal authorities stepped in following allegations of misconduct by an anti-gang unit that was accused of planting evidence and beating up suspects. The city ended up paying out more than $10 million to more than 100 plaintiffs following the scandal. No accused officers were ever convicted, but one fled prosecution and remains on the run. Now, early, now, after nearly two decades, a judge says Oakland police have reached, quote, substantial compliance in achieving reforms. But as seen as Josh Campbell reports, residents remain skeptical. It was a notorious time for the Oakland Police Department. Officers in the early 2000s accused of racial discrimination, beatings, kidnappings, planting evidence. Victims filed a lawsuit. It was rotten to the core in many areas largely because officers were not held accountable and that the leadership turned a bland, blind eye to a lot of these things. As part of an eventual $10 million settlement, the department was placed under federal oversight, mandating more than 50 reforms, including officer discipline, training, field supervision, incident reporting, and more. Do you feel today like if you saw something happening that shouldn't be happening, that you would be able to speak up? Absolutely. Officers like Mia Cooper, new to the force, are now trained that silence is not an option. Stand up and say something, you know. After nearly 20 years of federal supervision, a judge now says that oversight will end next year if the department can stay the course. Are you confident that Oakland Police today, this reform department, has the trust of the community that you're sworn to protect? I think it is a work in progress, but I think we're taking steps every day to build trust. Chief Laron Armstrong, who took over the department last year, points to new officers trained with a new mindset. My name is Brian Wood. I'm originally from Sacramento, California. Brian Wood has been on the force for two years. He and Mia Cooper are part of a newer generation of OPD officers who have only known the city's current model of progressive policing. Now it's in our DNA. It's not just, hey, go out there and arrest bad people. It's let's go out and actually serve the community who has empowered us. To, to do that thing. It's not, you know, what policing was 20, 30 years ago. Before it was just, we're a police officer, we're just going to go look for this, go look for that, stop people, pull people. Now it's like, no, let's connect with the community. OPD tells us it carefully screens new recruits. 
We need officers that embrace constant training, constant growth, servant spirit, have a heart for the people. If you don't have a servant spirit, wrong profession. Wrong profession. The results have won over some critics, including John Burris, who filed the original lawsuit against the department. We don't have the beatings that we used to have. We don't have the shootings that we used to have. One of the big questions is, can we maintain these, the efficiency that we have? And I'm hopeful that it will. But not everyone is. I think the people of Oakland should get to say whether or not the police department is ready to come off a of federal oversight. Cat Brooks, a community activist, says many residents are skeptical that any reforms will stick. Police departments do not want to change. They do not like being told what to do. It was supposed to be a five-year process, and it took 20 years for you to stop um, beating, racially profiling, mistreating. I'm sorry that it took so long, and I'm sorry that there was resistance. Chief Armstrong understands the frustration, but says what matters now is the present. Maybe it took 20 years to get us to this point, but I think we all should be proud of the fact that we are here. Now, Jake Aldo, a judge, has signaled an approaching end to federal oversight of the Oakland Police Department. There is an important stipulation. The order just signed by the judge will require the department to undergo a one-year sustainability period, during which time monitoring will continue until next June to ensure that the numerous reforms instituted by this department will long endure. Jake. All right, Josh Campbell, thanks so much for that report. appreciate it. Extreme weather across the country, how climate change is destroying homes right now. That's next. Thank you. Now to our Earth Matters series. The climate crisis is here, and it brought another week of extreme weather across the United States. Giant flames burning down a wealthy community in California due to drought. Intense wind gusts in the Midwest creating this wall of dust that stretched across parts of Iowa, Nebraska, and South Dakota. Let's bring in CNN's chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir. Bill, let's start with the fires in Orange County, California, an entire neighborhood caught on fire. Have you ever seen anything like this? Well, this one was so strange, Jake, because of the time of year. It's way too early for this sort of thing to happen. Usually this happens during the Santa Ana's in the fall. These are only maybe 30 mile an hour winds relative to what will be 60 mile an hour winds later. But things are so tinder dry. And even though it was only a couple hundred acres small relative to the big mega gigafires we've seen recently, those few hundred acres held some of the, the most expensive homes in Orange County. So nobody is immune in what uh, officials out there say uh, there's no longer a fire season because that would imply that there's not a fire season. Uh, That's not California anymore. There's not just fires burning on the West Coast. There's also this wall of dust that got stirred up in the West, what the Midwest. What, What caused that? Well, they're known as a haboob. They, you know, the term actually came originally from uh, the Sudan dust storms that you used to see. But now they see them in Arizona and now we see them in the Midwest uh, due to this drought. Uh, so dry in Nebraska, South Dakota, western Iowa that it kicked up this wall of dust. But also in Iowa in the same week, a derecho, which is a, a really long line of thunderstorms, like 60 miles wide, 240 miles long, almost 60 mile an hour winds. Uh, so uh, they're covering everything <laughs> in the glossary. And that's not a good omen heading into planting season there, you know, in the heartland. Continuing in our uh, end of times uh, checklist here in North Carolina's Outer Banks, rising seawaters engulfing houses sitting on the coast. Could we be seeing more of this from storms, homes just falling into the sea? 
Well, you know, this is the Outer Banks. This is a barrier island which moves naturally. It's moving faster as the seas rise there, which makes them more unstable uh, as well. Uh, This home was sold just maybe less than two years ago for almost $300,000. The neighbor next door lost his home in the same way. Didn't even get a chance to sleep in his house. He just purchased it a few months ago for over $500,000. But yes, yeah, so many beaches on the Atlantic coast are artificial. They're dredged up and sand is pumped in order to keep property values high. Uh, so those communities that can't afford to do that may be the first ones we see on the mainland uh, with scenes like this. But that's one of three houses already this year. And there's a dozen more condemned and they're worrying about there uh, in Cape Hatteras. And of course, this is happening all over the world. Tell us about the triple digit temperatures in Pakistan. Yeah, this is what's so interesting. So uh, the, the numbers came out. April was actually the coolest in the North America for geez, since five years or so. But Pakistan is the warmest April they've ever recorded. And as a result, that's melting glaciers uh, at a staggering rate, enough to burst these sort of sudden glacier outbursts. Uh, they're known as Yakulap in Iceland, usually warmed up by, you know, volcanic activity. But this is, you know, the man-made climate crisis is, is speeding the melting of these glaciers, enough to wipe out a bridge there in Pakistan. They're, the most glaciers outside of the polar region are in uh, Pakistan, and the officials there have identified 30 glacier lakes with communities below that get more precarious with every drip. Jake? When you look at all these events together, how do you make sense of it and what do you make of it? It's just, it's Mother Nature sending us every red light on the dashboard blinking full red. Uh, There are incredible ideas out there on how to both adapt and mitigate if everybody would get in the right direction. But it's just going to get worse and worse and worse by little degrees. And I just hope we don't normalize it. All right, Bill Weir, thank you so much. We're not going to normalize it on this show, at least. Bill Weir, thanks for being here to keep us on that program. Uh, be sure to tune in this Sunday morning to CNN State of the Union. My colleague, Dana Bash, is going to talk to the House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, as well as Republican Governor Pete Ricketts of Nebraska and Finnish President Solly Ninisto. That's this Sunday at 9 a.m. at noon, only on CNN. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I will see you Monday morning. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.